Welcome to the August 24th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, a detailed safety profile of acalabrutinib versus ibrutinib in patients with previously treated chronic lymphocytic leukemia. The post hoc analyses provide new insights on the incidence of AEs, including cardiovascular-related toxicities, which investigators say could influence treatment selection. Up next, uncovering the mechanisms behind response to physical trauma. Researchers report that leukocyte inflammation contributes to trauma-induced coagulopathy by oxidation and degradation of fibrinogen. A novel anti-inflammatory fusion protein blocked those modifications in vivo, suggesting a potential new approach for prevention and treatment of abnormal coagulation related to injury. And finally, a pharmacokinetic pharmacodynamic analysis shows that higher abatiseptic exposure decreases occurrence of acute graft-versus-host disease, GVHD, after allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, HSCT, from an unrelated donor. Importantly, higher abatiseptic exposure was not associated with increased risk of relapse or viral reaction. Our first research article is Detailed Safety Profile of Acalabrutinib versus Ibrutinib in Previously Treated Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia in Elevate RR Clinical Trial. The first author is John F. Seymour of the University of Melbourne in Victoria, Australia. The treatment paradigm for CLL has changed substantially due to introduction of covalent inhibitors of BTK, or Bruton's tyrosine kinase. However, important questions have been raised regarding risk-benefit differences between BTK inhibitors. Ibrutinib, the first to be approved, is linked to several adverse events that can precipitate treatment discontinuation. These include cardiovascular AEs, such as atrial fibrillation and flutter, hypertension, and bleeding. These safety concerns are likely related to the broad activity of ibrutinib, which inhibits a number of receptor and non-receptor tyrosine kinases. By contrast, acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib are more selective BTK inhibitors with improved safety profiles and lower rates of discontinuation related to toxicity. The present research article focuses on the AE profile of acalabrutinib in comparison to ibrutinib in Elevate RR, a randomized phase 3 trial that included 533 patients with previously treated CLL. In previously published results of Elevate RR, acalabrutinib was non-inferior to ibrutinib and had fewer cardiovascular AEs. With a median follow-up of 40.9 months, the median progression-free survival was 38.4 months for both BTK inhibitor arms. Any grade atrial fibrillation or flutter was significantly less common with acalabrutinib, occurring in 9.4% versus 16% with ibrutinib. Treatment discontinuation due to AEs occurred in 14.6% of patients in the acalabrutinib treatment arm and 21.3% in the ibrutinib arm. However, AE incidence is an isolated measure, which may be insufficient to characterize the toxicity profile of these agents. For example, Incidence data alone does not account for drug exposure or the course of AEs and their cumulative effects. 
Now we have more granularity on the safety of acalabrutinib and ibrutinib based on a post hoc analysis of Elevate RR. Seymour and colleagues have performed more detailed assessment of safety using additional methods, including exposure-adjusted incidence rate, meaning the number of events per 100 person months. They also use AE burden, a novel approach providing a single score that encompasses AE duration, recurrence, and grade. A total of 529 patients were included in the safety analyses. Ibrutinib was associated with higher rates of any-grade diarrhea, urinary tract infections, arthralgia, muscle spasms, and back pain. Exposure-adjusted incidences for these AEs ranged from 1.5 to 4.1-fold higher than for acalabrutinib. Conversely, exposure-adjusted incidence rates were higher for acalabrutinib for only two AEs, any-grade headache or cough, 1.6 and 1.2-fold higher, respectively. Importantly, exposure-adjusted incidences of several selected events of clinical interest were significantly higher for ibrutinib. Specifically, exposure-adjusted incidence rates were 2.0-fold higher for any grade atrial fibrillation or flutter, 2.8-fold higher for any grade hypertension, and 1.6-fold higher for any grade bleeding. Overall, acalabrutinib had fewer AE-related treatment discontinuations, with a hazard ratio of 0.62. Cumulative incidence of atrial fibrillation or flutter was lower with acalbrutinib in patients with no prior history of those events. Similarly, in patients with no prior history of hypertension, the cumulative incidence of hypertension was lower with acalbrutinib treatment. Turning from cardiovascular-related toxicities to infection, the post-hoc analyses provide an interesting contrast. Infection rates were generally similar between arms, whether looking at incidence, exposure-adjusted incidence, or AE burden score. Let's discuss the AE burden scores further. Considering all grade 1 to 4 AEs together, AE burden score was significantly higher for ibrutinib at 5.14 versus 3.86 for acalabrutinib, and AE burden scores were all significantly higher for atrial fibrillation or flutter, hypertension, and hemorrhage. In a commentary on this study, Karsten Utoff Nyman of Copenhagen University Hospital in Denmark emphasized that safety plus efficacy equals outcome. Utoff explains that there is a need to combine the AE burden score used in this study with a similarly nuanced assessment of efficacy. Toward that end, Utoff proposes a CLL treatment balance. Check out the commentary for a summary figure. Essentially, the suspended tray on the right side of the balance scale is the sum of all AEs accounting for duration and grade, and adjusted for time on treatment. On the other side of the scale is the sum of efficacy measures, also adjusted for time on treatment. So just as the AE burden score accounts for treatment duration, analysis of efficacy likewise needs to account for treatment duration and whether it was shortened due to toxicity, progression, or other reasons. It's important to point out that the Elevate RR study evaluated continuous BTK inhibitor therapy. Indefinite treatment has cost implications and exposes patients to ongoing toxicity. Thus, Utoff says, the expanded AE analyses in this study could be viewed as a step toward identifying optimal combinations for time-limited treatment. One final note, Seymour and colleagues caution that their findings are subject to limitations related to open-label study design and the ad hoc nature of the present analyses. Nevertheless, they say that overall, these in-depth events-based analyses and AE burden scores provide further support for a better tolerability profile of acalabrutinib in comparison to ibrutinib.
Let's move to the next research article. Novel melanocortin fusion protein inhibits fibrinogen oxidation and degradation during trauma-induced coagulopathy. The first author is Chong Hyup Han from the University of Washington in Seattle. Response to physical trauma is fundamental to all vertebrate organisms, yet surprisingly little is known about the basic mechanisms underlying trauma response. In this research article, Han and colleagues used in vitro and in vivo models of polytrauma to explore the effects of inflammation on coagulation. Polytrauma refers to the presence of injuries affecting multiple organ systems and is associated with hemorrhagic shock. The high level of tissue injury in polytrauma and the associated hemorrhagic shock increase inflammation and are believed to contribute to trauma-induced coagulopathy, or TIC. Early bleeding mortality is substantial in patients with TIC, a state of systemic anticoagulation associated with trauma. Although TIC is a complex process, one cornerstone of its pathophysiology is loss and consumption of fibrinogen. Fibrinogen is highly susceptible to oxidative modification. Importantly, even low levels of oxidation can have a substantial impact on fibrin clot structure, clot mechanisms, and susceptibility to fibrinolysis. Initially after tissue injury, fibrinogen is cleaved and polymerized into fibrin mesh, providing the structural support for hemostatic thrombus at the site of a tissue injury. But the blood concentration of fibrinogen decreases rapidly after severe injuries, which is strongly associated with TIC. And in trauma patients with TIC, recent data show that fibrinogen is both depleted and selectively oxidized. A final point of background. It's clear that injury survival depends on appropriate inflammatory and immune responses. Yet the link between cellular inflammation and coagulation following polytrauma is not as clear. In both trauma and sepsis, inflammatory and coagulation responses have been linked to pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines derived from endothelial cells and leukocytes. And the authors of this paper previously described linkages between activation of neutrophils and monocytes and fibrinogen. They showed that leukocyte activation oxidatively primed fibrinogen for degradation during sterile inflammation. The findings reported now by Hahn and co-authors shed new light on interactions between leukocyte activation, fibrinogen, and TIC. They evaluated the effect of IL-6-stimulated human leukocytes on fibrinogen using single-cell imaging flow cytometry and multiplex fluorescent western blotting. The findings published in blood suggest that leukocyte inflammation contributes to the pathophysiology of TIC by causing oxidation and proteolysis of fibrinogen. In a rat model, trauma with hemorrhagic shock increased IL-6 and other pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines, selectively oxidized and degraded fibrinogen, and induced TIC. To identify potential pathophysiological oxidants, the researchers stimulated human leukocytes with IL-6. This provoked generation of mitochondrial superoxide, primarily from monocytes. Using single-cell imaging flow cytometry, investigators observed that IL-6-stimulated monocytes provoked fibrinogen oxidation and degradation of fibrinogen. Further findings suggested that mitochondrial superoxide from monocytes triggered intracellular signal transduction and expression of pro-inflammatory genes. For example, mitochondrial superoxide-mediated endogenous monocyte TNF-alpha secretion and NK-kappa-B transactivation. The authors then looked for strategies to block leukocyte activation after trauma. 
In particular, they examined a family of anti-inflammatory peptides, termed melanocortins. These peptides are known to suppress activation of NF-kappa B, reduce secretion of inflammatory cytokines, chemokines, and adhesion molecules, and reduce production of reactive oxygen species, ROS. Melanocortin peptides can protect against ischemia and reperfusion injuries and have shown therapeutic effects in preclinical and clinical studies of hemorrhage and shock and for acute injuries to vital organ systems. However, no individual melanocortin peptide binds to all five melanocortin receptors and thus would not be expected to provide broad-based anti-inflammatory effects necessary to block the inflammatory storm associated with severe trauma and TIC. To overcome this limitation, the authors tested a novel melanocortin fusion protein formed from two of the most potent and broad-acting melanocortins. ACTH and alpha-MSH, to create the linear polypeptide termed AQB565, which could provide enhanced anti-inflammation. AQB565 blocked total reactive oxygen species generation and mitochondrial superoxide generation in monocytes, as well as blocking nitric oxide generation in lymphocytes. The AQB565 melanocortin fusion peptide was then evaluated in the rat polytrauma model, where it also attenuated inflammation, protected fibrinogen from oxidation and proteolysis, and prevented TIC. Taken together, these findings suggest that leukocyte activation contributes to TIC, and further, that activation of melanocortin pathways may be a novel approach for prevention and treatment of TIC. A commentary on this study, entitled Improving Clots in Trauma, was provided by John W. Weisel of the Department of Cell and Developmental Biology in the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. In his commentary, Weisel says this research article clearly demonstrates that modification of specific regions of fibrinogen through oxidative processes and subsequent degradation is fundamental to trauma-induced coagulopathy. He adds that the observations regarding suppression of inflammation by activation of melanocortin pathways is of clinical significance. However, whether the AQB565 melanocortin fusion protein will be as effective in humans as it is in rats remains to be seen. This report is only the beginning of the story, since this study raises many other pressing questions. For example, what effects do these fibrinogen modifications have on clot structure and mechanics? What are the pathways involved in these oxidative modifications? And could dual treatment for AQB565 and other anti-inflammatory treatments further improve outcomes? Further research is needed, Weisel concludes, to determine the answers to these and other pressing questions. The final article is titled, Higher Abatacept Exposure After Transplant Decreases Acute GVHD Risk Without Increasing Adverse Events. The first author is Takudo Takahashi of Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorder Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Hematopoietic stem cell transplantation from both HLA-matched and HLA-mismatched unrelated donors can be a life-saving treatment for patients with hematologic malignancies. However, graft-versus-host disease, GVHD, remains a major cause of transplant morbidity and mortality. Substantial efforts have been made to improve GVHD prophylaxis. This includes the development of abatacept, a selective co-stimulation modulator for the prophylaxis of acute GVHD. 
Previously, Abatacept received FDA approval for the treatment of patients with rheumatoid arthritis, among other rheumatic diseases. And in December 2021, Abatacept became the first-ever FDA-approved drug for prevention of GVHD. Abatacept is now indicated in combination with methotrexate and a calcineurin inhibitor for the prevention of acute GVHD in patients undergoing transplant from a matched or one-allele mismatched unrelated donor. Abatacept is a fusion protein that incorporates the antigen-binding domain of CTLA-4 plus a humanized FC portion of immunoglobulin G4. The drug inhibits T-cell co-stimulation through the CD80-86-CD28 pathway. The result is a decrease in T-cell activation, which accounts for this drug's effectiveness in preventing acute GVHD. The Abatacept-2 study, or ABA-2, was the first multicenter trial looking at the use of targeted inhibition of T-cell co-stimulation in acute GVHD prevention. Adding abatacept to unrelated donor transplant significantly reduced the incidence of acute GVHD in the ABA2 trial. Abatacept also increased the proportion of patients in the study who were free of severe acute GVHD. These benefits were especially pronounced in patients undergoing HLA mismatched transplant. Abatacept also had acceptable safety, with no evidence of increases in relapse or viral reactivation. Acceptable safety is an important point. Currently, however, it's unclear whether the currently used dose of abatacept is optimal. In the acute GVHD prevention studies, patients received the same abatacept dose of 10 mg per kilogram that was used in some rheumatic disease treatment studies. However, the acute GVHD studies utilized a more compressed dosing schedule designed to achieve higher initial trough levels and increase early drug exposure. The schedule includes one 60-minute infusion the day before transplantation, followed by three more doses on days 5, 14, and 28 after transplantation. A key tenant of abatacept dosing, based on the rheumatoid disease experience, is to achieve a steady-state trough concentration of greater than 10 micrograms per milliliter. But for acute GVHD prevention, compressed dosing translates into considerably higher trough levels. In a pilot study of abatacept for acute GVHD prevention, the mean trough value reached 45.6 micrograms per milliliter, with a range of 24.5 to 77.3 micrograms per milliliter. That raises an important question. Can the dose of abatacept required to prevent GVHD prophylaxis be optimized? In the present research article, Takahashi and co-investigators focused on the relationship between abatacept exposure and post-transplant outcomes. They performed pharmacokinetic pharmacodynamic analyses on samples that had been collected from 184 patients in the ABA2 trial. The primary outcome was the association between trough concentration of abatacept and occurrence of grade 2 to 4 acute GVHD over the next 100 days. They also looked at the relationship between trough concentration and key safety outcomes, including viral reactivation and disease relapse. More specifically, they looked at the trough concentration of abatacept after dose 1. They found that for patients with a trough concentration of greater than or equal to 39 micrograms per milliliter, the risk of grade 2 to 4 acute GVHD was significantly lower than those patients with a trough concentration lower than 39 micrograms per milliliter, with a hazard ratio of 0.35 and 95% confidence interval of 0.19 to 0.65. About 60% of patients achieved that threshold. 
And in the remainder of patients with trough concentrations lower than 39 micrograms per milliliter, the rate of grade 2 to 4 acute GVHD was not statistically different than what was observed in the placebo group. What about safety outcomes? Investigators found no negative relationships between abatacept exposure and relapse. Likewise, there were no associations between drug exposure and risk of CMV or EBV viremia. So, compared to the previously identified target of 10 micrograms per milliliter, a trough concentration of greater than or equal to 39 micrograms per milliliter after dose 1 was associated with favorable risk of acute GVHD and no observed exposure toxicity relationships. In a commentary on this study titled GVHD, Better Safe Than Sorry, Francesca Bonifaci of the University of Bologna in Italy explores the question of whether it's time to start tailoring GVHD prophylaxis using a pharmacokinetics-driven approach. Bonifaci says that the study results are so cogent and persuasive that one can't help but wonder, is it already legitimate to dose escalate in patients with lower abatacept exposure? At this time, Bonifaci says she would discourage dose adjustments in routine clinical practice. On the other hand, she would encourage further testing of this hypothesis in a dedicated clinical trial. Furthermore, Bonifaci says pharmacokinetic analysis and therapeutic drug monitoring should be a routine part of transplant care. Her concluding words, short and to the point, it is time to do it. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.